in kids kindergarten through second grade if you want to make your way out to your story time. For everybody else, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, or if you have one of the handouts with the passage printed in the bulletin, it's kind of ordered and structured in a way that meant to help you follow along, and we're looking at the second commandment, and uh, as we begin... Uh, you may never have heard of Jay Henricks, but you've probably seen his work. He's one of the kind of most famous marketers, uh, made a fortune in sales, and then is hired by companies to come in and help them with their, their branding and their storytelling and their marketing. And kind of the way he got captured by sales uh, has its origin in a very... Uh, unfortunate Father's Day present that his mother bought for his dad when he was about 13. And as he sets up the story, he says, all right, to kind of appreciate the present, you have to understand kind of my dad. And my dad's a ex, kind of World War II veteran, was no nonsense. Like his happy place was in his workshop. And like his idea of fun was fixing things uh, around the house. And uh, so things like, uh, he said kind of any game that involved like balls or things like that, he thought was just a total waste of time. And uh, one Father's Day, uh, his mother kind of makes him put on a blindfold. She's so excited about this present that she has gotten. And her boys have helped set it up in the basement. And they're all giddy and can't wait to see his expression. Once he comes down, she blindfolds him, walks him downstairs, pulls off the blindfold, and they all go, surprise! And then he just stares at this monstrosity in the basement. And he goes, we'll have to edit the story a little bit. He says, what is that? And she says, it's, it's a pool table. He says, I know it's a pool table. Why is it in my basement? <laughs> and she says, You're, and he says, what am I supposed to do with that? And she says, you're supposed to play pool with it. And he says, well, maybe I can turn it into a workbench or something. And then that starts kind of a, a fight where he's, the, the dad storms out of the basement angry. Mom runs upstairs. She's crying. The boys are kind of giggling because they're like, oh, this is amazing. What a wonderful Father's Day. Uh, you know, Sorry, Mom, do you mind if we start playing or do we need to wait for Dad to... Uh, Come back. And he, as he talked to his mom, so he kind of went and started to kind of talking to mom. It's like, you know, why, like, why did you buy dad the, the, the pool table? And she's like, I don't know. I went into the department store and my plan was to buy him three new dress shirts. But somehow by the end of the afternoon, I, I leave with this pool table. And he said, how did that happen? He says, well, I went in, and the salesman was so smooth, and he started talking to me about, all right, what is the present for? Who's it for? What do we want to see? And he says, by the end, like, he painted this vision of just family bliss of, like, you and the boys and dad laughing and shooting pool all together, and I just got caught up in that, that image, and I, I wanted that for our family. And he said, in that moment, I realized this, this power of this salesman who created this image and then was able to sell this really expensive product to somebody who really didn't need it or want it. And he says, it's amazing because the, the image that was created, the trouble was the image that was created didn't really match up to reality. 
not the reality of dad or our life or dislikes. And he had this line, he says, I learned in that moment that the image was everything. And maybe you remember one of the ad campaigns he helped create. Image is everything. And if you can just create an image and then sell the image, then, then you can sell everything. You, you, you paint the pictures and you can sell anything. But then the trouble happens when the, the tension or the friction between what is real and then what is imagined. And once they bump up to one another. And you know, you think about how kind of marketing works and how so many things are sold. Is what's sold is a certain image. One of our children is very practical, by the book, logical. And it was interesting this Christmas, another one of our children really wanted a pair of Air Jordans. And their siblings said, Why do you even want those? You don't play basketball. Those are basketball shoes. You don't play basketball. And see, they weren't necessarily desired for their, their, their function. There's a certain image that they craft. And, you know, we do that. We do it in a small scale so often to other people. We'll kind of create an image, and then we'll project something onto them. We can impose, like, our desires or needs or opinions on them and try to kind of craft people in our own image, we might project our own insecurities and fears onto them. You know, we can do it in, in marriage. You know, uh, family counselors will say there's certain seasons that it's uh, more kind of kind of a danger zone for divorce, kind of year one, year seven. Once the kids leave the house, you become empty nesters. The year seven is always interesting to me. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the seven-year itch. But so much of that is fueled by the idea that you've been together long enough to realize that this person probably is not going to change in the ways that you thought. So you've kind of crafted this image, and all of a sudden things aren't quite living up to this image that I've crafted about who I want you to be, who I want myself to be, who I want my world to be. Sometimes we can do it to our children. We'll, we'll kind of craft a, an image of who we want them to be. And whether or not that lines up with who they really are. You know, I'm always amazed when there's a disconnect and, and we do it for ourselves when there's this glaring disconnect between the image we have in our own mind of who we are and who we actually are. Back when uh, American Idol was popular, we used to watch that show and the thing that I got the most joy out of was seeing the drastic disconnect between the people who really thought they could sing well and who couldn't, and it's like, how in the world do you live in such a delusion without people loving you enough to tell you the truth, but maybe it was just spectacle for TV. And playing basketball in college, the days that we, we hated worse were film days. So you had a little phrase, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. So you have in your mind how you thought you did, but then when you see it clearly on the screen, you say, oh man. That was not as good as I thought it was. That, that, that seems so much better in my head when I think about it. Man, I thought I was faster than that. You know, we just kind of do it in the world. When Cynthia and I went and taught English in China, it was interesting. We were in a kind of rural country village out in Central uh, Asia, and each afternoon they would take us to different places, and, you know, one, they'd be amazed at, like, oh, you've never heard about this local lake. I was just kind of, you know, it's like, no, um, sorry. You know, 
call us dumb Americans, but we've never heard about this local lake that's a local famous place. But thinking, how? I mean, everybody in the world surely knows about this place. I mean, we do this all the time where we craft these, these images. And, you know, in small ways, they can create distortions. They can create distractions, create difficulty. But if you do it on a large scale, it can bring in devastation and disillusionment. And in many ways, this is what the second commandment is all about. What we do on a small scale to other people and ourselves, God's saying, I'm not going to let you do that to me. And the first, really, I think the first five are all about our relationship with the Lord, Yahweh, your God, how you relate to him. The first two really zero in on what it means to rightly worship him. How are we supposed to go about it with the posture of heart and mind? And so this is something we need to pay attention to. You know, like I said, it's something we do to others all the time, and it can bring distortion and distraction. But when we do it to God, it can become devastating. And the good news for us is that God loves us, and in one sense, he loves his world and his name where he's not going to allow it. He's too good to allow us to fashion images of who he is, too loving to let us worship things that don't deserve it. So let's look at the text, and as we kind of break down this commandment, we're going to break it down. We're going to look at the rule and the reason and then the result of the command. So if you have your Bibles or have the sheet, you can kind of follow Along, really, that kind of commandment, what we say, number two, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, or I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is the longest of the, or one of the longest of the commandments, this one, and then the one on the Sabbath of the two that kind of get the most explanation. And it's interesting that these two are the longest and they're also the most controversial. It's kind of go out through church history. These are the two most controversial. But let's look at the, kind of the rule and just look at the words. I mean, you could kind of sum up no man-made representations of God. So nothing can serve as the object of worship. No images of God. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And then kind of gives out of the three categories. In the likeness of what is in heaven, earth below, heaven above, earth below, waters underneath the earth. Kind of this is the, the cosmology. Any created thing. The three kind of tiers of the earth. The heavens, the earth, the waters below the earth. Don't make any image and then it reiterates, you shall not worship and you shall not serve them. So interesting two words there, worship and serve. As we've seen through this whole thing, that word for serve is one of the key words that runs all throughout Exodus. And you actually can translate that worship. So you could do a literal translation of this, you shall not worship or worship any, uh, anything to, to, to serve them. So to, to serve, the first word for worship literally is the word to bow down. So another way to translate, you shall not bow down or worship them. You shall not bow down or serve them. So you begin to think, all right, here's the, kind of the command. There's certain things that desire or even demand that we bow down to them and 
worship them. Now, I mentioned this is one of the most controversial of the command, uh, commands. Uh, goes all the way back to the 7th century in the 7th Ecumenical Council. It was called the Icon Class, Icon, Iconoclast Controversy. And so the question is, all right, can you worship venerated kind of images, especially of Jesus? Are you allowed to make images of Jesus and then use them in the worship service? And it's worth kind of thinking about. This is something we'll wrestle more with in our men's Bible study because this is kind of the way we like to take controversial things and kind of talk about them around the table. But in the 7th century, the church kind of said, all right, making images of Jesus is appropriate to be used for devotion and other things. But there are plenty of traditions who kind of flow from like the Westminster Confession of, of Faith, who say making images uh, of Jesus are not appropriate. So kind of think, that, all right, what, what's being commanded here? Um, we're going to kind of focus in on what's that kind of that core uh, commandment, but what's the, what's the rule? No images of God to be used in worship to bow down or to serve. And it might be worth just pausing and thinking, all right, what are the things in my life that demand I bow down to? Even things like youth sports. Once you get the schedule out, now your entire life now must bow down to this demand. Or what are the things that de demand we serve? So this is the rule. No man-made representations of something that's going to be used in worship. But then notice how he unpacks the reason. What's the reason? You get a long explanation here about what the reason is. For I, Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is God saying, I'm a jealous God. And maybe of all the attributes of God, this is the one that probably sounds the harshest to our ears. We don't really have a context where we think about jealousy in a positive light. Because we often uh, conflate uh, jealousy with envy. So we say jealous and we assume it's often envious. But that's not what's kind of happening here. That's not the, the, the context or, or the meaning behind that idea of jealousy. Remember, the context is in the context of covenantal relationships. So you think about relationships that are in the context of the covenant. So that's like marriage relationship, family, children. And, you know, there's an appropriate, you know, maybe another word would be protectiveness, guardedness, appropriate jealousy. See, one commentator says the type of jealousy that he's talking about is the appropriate form that offended love will take. So when love is offended, what's the appropriate form that it's going to take? It's going to become protective and it'll become uh, zealous to guard itself and its, its prerogatives. So part of our problem is we don't really know what pure or true love is like. In the present form, all we experience is uh, love that's been tainted in some way by sin, sinful selfishness, and uh, we don't really know what completely sacrificial and selfless love is like. Even in our world, where one of the, the most prominent attributes that's celebrated is a type of, of love that is really just self-referential affirmation. So what love is, is you affirm everything that I say about me, 
and as long as you affirm what I say about me, then that's considered love. But if you think about it, I mean, that's not really what true love is at all. I mean, true love is really never content with leaving you just like you are. It always wants you to be better. It always wants something more of you. And if you think about a lot of our cultural kind of laissez-faire, live and let live, is not because we love other people, it's because we love ourselves. We don't want to do the hard thing. And so this idea of that he's a jealous God is, is hard for us to understand. But he says, I'm jealous for my own glory, for my own name, for the things that are important, for the proper priorities. Remember here when I was in seminary, our pre- president, Dr. Uh, Al Moeller, his wife would joke, and they called her the family bulldog. And the idea was that there was so many people who were kind of pulling for their time and their attention. She had to be the calendar bulldog. We had to become jealous to guard it and protect it. So our family, the family could keep their, keep their time. That's the appropriate type of jealousy. So the one is, says, because I'm a jealous God. But another reason he gives for this command, and Moses is going to unpack this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, is how he speaks to them. Now just listen to the next generation in Deuteronomy 4 as Moses is describing this event. He's telling the people, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget all these things that your eyes have seen, unless you depart from the Lord in your heart, and you make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, so this is the day, he's looking back 40 years later, and the Lord said to me, gather all the people that I may let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days of their life and that they may teach their children so. And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire from the heart of heaven, and it was wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the sounds of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and it declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. And that is these ten words or these ten commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at the, that time to teach you all these statues and rules so that you will do them when you enter into the land. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved images, image for yourselves in the form of any figure in the likeness of male, female, likeness of any animal on the earth, the likeness of winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to the heavens when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heavens and be drawn away to bow down and serve them. These things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the earth. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. So beware. So remember, when he spoke to you, you saw no form. You just heard this voice. He says there's danger when you create this form to represent who you think that voice is. And this can trickle in. I remember reading a a biography of an inner-city pastor from Harlem named Tom Skinner. And uh, he would talk about he had a hard time growing up seeing images of Jesus. He had a hard time uh, respecting him because he used to say, man, that dude wouldn't last five minutes in my neighborhood. And so they created the image. So what's the image that's being 
projected. God says, I am who I am. Don't create these, these forms. Now notice the result is the result is either death or life. Notice, and this is, this is kind of jarring for us as well, because he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So this result is either death nor life. On the one hand, I'll, uh, it sounds like saying I'm going to punish the children of those who hate me to the third and fourth generation. I'm going to visit the iniquity. Saying, oh, that's an interesting word. Why choose that word? You know, one of the things that we have to kind of the challenge when we think about the in the this section of the Bible, there's a pretty um, kind of robust vocabulary for sin. There's three dominant words and about six or seven other words kind of fill in. And it can be kind of hard for us because we think about it in lump categories. So it's similar, like I'm from the South, from Atlanta. If you're from the Atlanta area, you have Coke. So Coke is a genre of things. <laughs> Coke means all soft drinks. So if you go to a restaurant in the South and you ask for a Coke, they might not just bring you a Coca-Cola. Coke means all of them. But then, to make it clear, uh, Coke is also a subgenre of that. So you do have Coke and Diet Coke and Coke Zero. And then other things, you have like Sprite, Mountain Dew. You know, these are all subgenres. Now, when you think about sin in the Bible, we use the word sin as the broad kind of genre but then it has specific words, and sin is one of those words that have specific meanings. So like the, that, that, the, the specific meaning for sin is to miss the mark. So you get the idea that there's a standard, and you just have missed the standard. You get that like in Paul in the, the book of Romans. He uses sin in both ways. Sin is a power, a force, something that controls us. But it's also all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've, you've missed the mark. It's like an archer's term. And so this is just means there's a, a, a standard. And in some sense, when you miss the standard, it's not, I mean, in one sense, you don't quite take it personal. Like sometimes we'll wrestle with this, like when we're going over math grades. So, all right, you missed 10 of them. And you can't say, oh, well, the teacher just doesn't like me. That has nothing to do with it. The answer was nine, and you put seven. You just, you just, you missed when I was playing basketball in college, we had a certain time where we had to run before practice of 5K in this time. And it was very, if you didn't make it, it wasn't personal. You just didn't make the time. That's kind of how I was saying. You missed the standard. You missed the mark. But then there's another word, kind of bucket word, that's the word iniquity. That's this word. And this word, the root of this word is things that are bent or crooked. And it kind of has two connotations. It has the connotation of, of pollution and perversion. So pollution and perversion. And the idea here is that I'm going to visit the iniquity, the pollution or the perversion on generations. That's going to last. That's the kind of thing that ju you just can't sweep under the rug. It, it lasts. And it's interesting, you even think about our current kind of political climate, because you can kind of move one. So everybody believes that sin is a thing, but you don't have kind of different categories. You believe like the worst sin is a certain type of pollution that everybody has to deal with, or is it a certain type of perversion that shouldn't be brought into the community? Well, here it says both of these are iniquity, and both of them will affect the community for generations. And then the third kind of category is this category of trespass or what are called rebellion. These are kind of high-handed things that you do very intentionally. 
And what's fascinating when they do the laws of the tabernacle and the sacrificial systems, you have sacrifices to cover these two, but there's not a sacrifice to cover this one, kind of that high-handed rebellion. Well, he very intentionally uses that middle word, that iniquity. So you think, all right, what's he saying here? And at the most basic level, it means that your sins are going to have consequences for those around you. And those, those consequences can last for generations. And I mean, some of you know this. One of the most heroic things you can do in life is to be the one who's the, the generational sin breaker. We say these been these generational patterns of sin in my, in my family's life that have just taken hold for generation, and I'm going to be the one where it says it stops here. Slave no more. And this is something they had to wrestle with. You know, it took them, and uh, it was about nine months to get them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years at least to get Egypt out of them, a whole generation to get it out of them. And so you think about, all right, what are the, what are the generational sins that God is calling you to stop and to break? And in many ways, those are some of the most heroic acts you can do. And you get to these things. These are things where you say, ah, well, that's just, just how we do it here. It's just how I was raised. So at the basic level, it, it affects generations. But at a deeper level, one of the things that gets passed from fathers to the children is the guilt of their sin. It gets passed on down generationally. Paul will unpack that in Romans 2, that Adam, our first father, it gets passed down to us. You can see throughout the Bible the sins of the, the fathers often affect significantly uh, the family. So there, the, the death, three, four generations. But notice life. And then notice this compare in the scale. Life, the promise is so much more powerful than the threat. But I'm going to show loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandment. The punishment goes for three or four generations, but the loving kindness goes for thousand generations. And you think about that word, that's such a beautiful word, loving Kindness. Do you know the English? Like one of the words that's kind of been neutered of its force and power is our word kindness. You know, like kindness is just kind of, that's just what people who smile and let you open up the door, you know. I was about to say at Publix, but they don't have doors you open anymore. It's all automatic, so we don't even have the opportunity to do <laughs> kind gestures. But, you know, kindness is like this kind of soft, wimpy kind of thing. You know, kind of the root of the word comes from our kin, kindred. Kindness. So the idea is that there's a certain fierce way you love your family, whether you, you know, you often say, you know, you might not like them, but you got, you're stuck with them, they're family. And so it's you extend that family care to a broader circle that's outside of your family, kindness. And I love the loving is put upon this because it's, and once it's not just stuck with these people, it's you love them and you love them with the same kind, the kin, your kindred. You bring them in. He says, I'm bringing you in to the loving environment of my family for generations. And then you think, all right, well, how long is that going to be? Kind of generations, what does that mean? One of the most interesting books I read last year was a book on generations, talking about how different the, uh, you know, kind of the silent generations, what you called it, than the baby boomers. 
than Gen X, than the millennials, than Gen Z, talking about these different generations. And for the most part, we conceptualize of generations that last about 15-ish to 20 years. Biblical world, they're kind of they're a little longer view. Their world, you think generations is about 40 years, roughly. So the wilderness was one generation, 40 years. A new generation comes and passes into the land. So you think about it, I just kind of do the math. If uh, sin will trickle down and affect families for, let's say, you know, 40 years. So, you know, what's that, 80, 120 roughly years. That's a long time. But then mercy and grace can leave, leave an imprint, a legacy that can last a thousand generations. Do you realize that on the biblical calculations with 40-year generations, it's only, uh, we're only a hundred generations out from Abraham. So I don't know if you have like an end times calculator. Maybe we got a long time to go if we're going to get to a thousand generations because we're just a hundred from Abraham. And that's how deep and long. You talk about sin will pollute uh, in an environment, but the way mercy and grace can sustain and bring health and life. You're living right now off the God's goodness to people you don't know from a thousand years ago. We're the recipients of the fruit of that mercy, the generation and his goodness lasts long. And I love the power is for those, you know, judgment comes for those who hate me. But mercy comes from those who love me. And the power of the gospel is to turn haters into lovers, to bring, you know, the way of the Apostle Paul. How did God destroy his enemy? By making him his friend and bringing him into his family. And so here we just think this tells us that everybody is going to leave a legacy in some way. Your life will leave a legacy. It will either be a legacy of mercy and grace or it will be some other kind and that legacy has everything to do with who and how you worship and so like when a man refuses to love God passionately and to worship him rightly the consequences of that sin filters down but when he loves God and worships him appropriately the consequences of that filters down so how can we ensure that we leave or experience this godly legacy and enter into this Loving kindness, and the key is like, how do you worship God in the right way? How do you experience that? And I think the key here is that rather than trying to make God into our image, we need to be remade into his image. The reason why we don't make images of God is because God's already made an image of God, and it's us, and his goal is to remake us into his image. Image. You can kind of tell the story of the world as the story of an image. You know, maybe that tag, that ad line is right. Image is everything. And we were originally made in the image of God to be like him and to reflect his glory. That's why we don't make images because we are the image. The only legitimate image of God is the image he created. These living, breathing, thinking, working, speaking, actual people that are all around you. So we don't make image, we're to be the image. But the problem is that image has been damaged, it's fallen, it's broken. The image of God has been defaced up upon us and we don't reflect his glory like we were meant to. So how can we fix it? What does God do? You know, in many ways he sent two people 
to people. He sent his son, and then he sent his spirit to, to parts of himself. He sent his son, and he sent his spirit to remake us and renew us into his image. He First, he sent his son, which is his true image. As Paul says in Colossians, it's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. And if you remember right before Jesus was going to leave and one of his disciples, Philip, said, Lord, it would be enough for us if you just show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been you with you this whole time? Like, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You've seen his image. You've seen me. And part of the mystery here that they're getting is when the law was proclaimed at Sinai, one of the things that Israelites, they saw no image that's why I read Deuteronomy 4. He wanted to reiterate, you just heard a voice. You didn't see an image. And then when they, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and he gives the commands to create the ark, uh, the ark of the covenant, is to have this throne seat with two cherubim and it's to be, a, 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 they call it the mercy seat. And it's supposed to be the throne where the image of God actually sits. But part of the story is that it was always intentionally vacant. See, it contains a promise that one day the image of God will sit in this place and it's reserved for someone to sit in, but no one's ever allowed to sit there. That's why in the third century when uh, uh, the Romans came in and it was the, the great desolation, the, uh, the uh, desolation of abomination when, um, I, I'm drawing a blank on which Roman general it was, went into the temple and into the Holy of Holies and he was wanting to see the image and he comes in and said, there's no one sitting on the throne. They have the mercy seat, but there's nobody on it. It's all a sham. They start laughing and say, these ignorant Israelites, they don't even know. It's like the Wizard of Oz. There's, there's nobody behind the curtain. There's no one on the throne. And what he didn't know is the lack of the image was intentional because there is someone who was going to come and take the throne, but the point of contact between us and the Lord is Jesus himself. If we're going to come to worship the true God, we come to Jesus and then he's the one who begins to repair us. And that's why Paul celebrates that, that that little throne that was in the Holy of Holies was a model of what's happening in the heavenlies. And right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has taken that seat. And so now, what do we do? If we want to be remade, first we accept the Son. He came to earth to live the life we were supposed to live. He died the death we should have died. And as we repent of our sins... He'll wash clean those iniquities. He'll forgive us and make us new. And then he'll pour out his spirit. And the whole job of the Holy Spirit is to slowly and patiently rework us to become into the image of the Father. So we come to Jesus. And then Jesus sends the spirit to come to us and uses the ordinary means of grace to slowly remake us, and we become transformed in one degree of glory to the next. And even when you go through Exodus, one of the kind of amazing things is the more time Moses spends in the presence of the Lord, the more he becomes like the Lord. And then that gets transformed in the new covenant as he pours out the Spirit, and he wants to make us into his image so we become uh, more loving, more patient, more kind, we get filled with his goodness and his faithfulness and have self-control, these different images, we get remade. 
So why do we not make images of God? It's because we are the image of God, and God wants to remake us into his image. So how does that happen? It first begins to happen by repentance. We repent of our sin, and we turn to him, and then we try to walk faithfully the path that he lays before us. And one of the reasons each week we come to the Lord's table, because it's that table to remind us this is the path. This is the symbol of us being remade into his image. On the night that he was betrayed and Philip wanted to see the father and he says, look to me. And what you look to me is to see sacrificial love in its most pure form, bearing your sins, paying the penalty and providing you life. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And this cup represents my blood that's shed for you. So here at Trinity, we have four stations. There'll be a gluten-free one in the back. And once our servers are in place, you come, and then we remember what's given for us to remake us into his image and likeness.